Father God, over 2,000 years ago, you came uh, in, in tiny form as a baby in a manger, born of a virgin in a little body that contained the sovereign power of the creator of the world. You placed us in this world that you had created good. And the, Lord, the beauty of creation groans even now under the weight of sin. Things are not the way they were created to be. We experience death, heartache, brokenness, broken relationships, wars, and poverty. This is truly our present reality. But we know that one day you will make all things right. For you are sovereignly moving the events of history and of our lives according to your purposes. Father God, we confess this morning that we do not live in light of this reality. Our lives are, are too easily overwhelmed by anxiety and fear. We look for ease and comfort instead of looking at how you are at work in the events that surround us. You call us, your people, Lord, to faithfulness. We pray that we would be a people who are known for that, who are known for our faithfulness. That in spite of the difficulties of our life, in spite of the world that is groaning under the weight of sin, that we would hope in you. Grant us the power to be faithful even to the point of death. We thank you, Lord, for this morning for your sovereign rule, that we can trust you even when it appears that there is no hope. We thank you for bringing us into yourself and in doing so have given our lives a purpose. Lord, give us wisdom to see that purpose today. Lord, we also thank you that we are not alone in this world, uh, that, that you have given other faithful, gospel-preaching, Bible-believing churches here, even in the Willamette Valley. And this morning, we pray for Trevor Binkley and Bethany Baptist Church in, in uh, Beaverton. We pray, Lord, that they would faithfully proclaim your word over there in, in Beaverton. And as Trevor is in the first couple years as lead pastor there, we pray that you would give him the ability to stand where you call him to stand and to lovingly shepherd the flock that you have given him. We pray that he would be marked by faithfulness and longevity there in that church. And finally, Father, we pray for ourselves. We pray uh, for all of the young families and families with children here at Mission. Lord, we are grateful for the gift of, of, young of children that you have given to us. As children and families and, and teachers once again begin looking towards starting school back up after the winter break, we pray that their learning would not just be mere exercise in growing in knowledge, but that they would recognize that their studies all point them to you, for you are a God of truth. We also pray for those who are entering into situations that will test their faith. Lord, we pray that you would work in the lives of our young people, for it is only you who can save. And we pray that you would do just that, that you would save them not only from the power of sin, but use the fallen world that we live in to draw them to yourself. And as the word is preached this morning, we pray that it would have that same effect on our hearts, that it would give purpose to the brokenness that we live in. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat and open your Bibles to Revelation 6. 
You might be thinking it's the Sunday after Christmas, it's snowing outside, it's Snowpocalypse 2021. And so you might be thinking, maybe we'll get a light teaching from Hans. Well, friends, we are in Revelation, and so there aren't really any light teachings. And the Lord's word is clear that whether it is by many or by few, he is still faithful to his word. And his word says in Revelation 1, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And so we are excited to put on our thinking caps and prepare our hearts for God's word uh, and dig into Revelation chapter 6 this morning. Are you excited to do that? Amen. All right, well, on October 18th, 1924... A sports writer for the New York Herald Tribune wrote a sports story that, to this day, lives on as one of the most famous pieces of sports reporting that was ever penned. It was commemorating a group of four backfield football players that played for the University of Notre Dame and its famous coach, Newt Rockney. Now, I know you're tired of Notre Dame stories, but sorry, that's where I went. Now, these four players had an uncanny ability to score on any and all opponents that they faced. And on this particular fall day, the Fighting Irish of Notre Dame had just defeated a tough army team, 13-7, and so these famous words were written. Outlined against a blue-gray October sky, the four horsemen rode again. In dramatic lore, they are known as famine, pestilence, destruction, and death, but these are only their aliases. Their real names are Stuldreyer, Miller, Crowley, and Layden. They formed the crest of the South Bend Cyclone before which another fighting army team was swept over the precipice at the polo grounds this afternoon as 55,000 spectators peered down upon the bewildering panorama spread out upon the green plain below. Now, in order to enshrine this chance for marketing fame once and for all, a publicity manager for the team had the four men sit atop four horses, and the following picture was taken. The imagery which this story was banking upon that the common reader would know is the imagery that we will be looking at this morning in Revelation 6, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. We see in chapter 6 an enthroned lamb from chapter 5 breaking the seals of the scroll given to him by the Almighty, and in it we will see four characters on four horses that symbolize the playing out of suffering upon the earth. Now the big question that everyone brings to this section is, when will this occur? It's the question of when. But I begin with this story of the four horsemen of Notre Dame because it is a great example of how anyone at any time can take the vivid imagery and symbolism of the Bible, especially in an apocalyptic book like Revelation, and put the focus on something completely unrelated to what is actually the point. Now, for many, Revelation 6 is the perfect chapter to be discussing as we finish off one year and enter into the next. It's great fodder for a prophetic prognostication to figure out where we are in time and if 2022 will be the year relative to Christ's second return. Now, obviously, we hope that it is and we pray that it is, but is that our job to make prognostications? Now, this is strongly pursued activity across Christendom in many circles, even though the Bible says over and over again that it is an impossibility for us to know the day and the hour of Christ's return. And yet, we still keep trying. This does not negate the fact that many Christians, past, present, and future, look to the headlines of current occurrences, and they immediately pronounce that the four horsemen of the apocalypse have arrived, and the events of Revelation are coming to a conclusion. And this is not surprising, considering that every year, at this exact time, 
Our headlines begin exploding with predictions about a dystopian future. Headlines like this one up on the screen. It says, amid drought, conflict, and rocketing prices, a global food crisis could be approaching, top expert warns. And it seems to get worse every year. Do you recognize that? Now, can you imagine, not the headlines in 2021, but can you imagine the headlines shouted by town criers during the Black Plague? or many civil wars that ravaged Europe, World War I or World War II. Can you imagine the headlines in the year 1666? Think about it for a second. Or remember the year 2000. The question that we need to ask in the midst of unpacking this text and symbolism, much like we will have to do at many other points along the journey through Revelation, is not when, but it's the question, are we supposed to be focused upon the symbolism used, or is the symbolism pointing us back to where our focus should be, or should I say, pointing us back to the one upon whom we should be focused? For even these four horsemen that we will be seeing are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Do you guys remember that word from the introduction? It comes from the opening words of Revelation, where it says in the earliest Greek manuscripts, apocalypsis Jesu Christos which means the revelation of Jesus Christ. I and other pastors will remind you throughout Revelation that the church has often erred when discussing the topic of eschatology or the study of last things. And we have erred because we have focused on the events of the last things rather than on the fact that they are the last things because Christ is ruling and reigning. He is seated on the throne. And so as we look at these four horsemen who bring suffering, we will see them for what they are, but we will also see them for what they are meant to symbolize, which is the sovereign hand of God conducting the affairs of man in such a way that those who are his own subjects are sanctified and purified for his service through the testing of their faith. And we will also see that those that are not his own are punished with judgment and called to repent out of love. Now, we will look at that judgment more in later sections, even next week, but today we will focus on sovereignty, suffering, and sanctification. Sovereignty, suffering, and sanctification. Let's take a look at these four intimidating symbolic warriors and see what they might be stating to us in Revelation 6. Revelation 6, verse 1. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. 
And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Right away, we see that the focus is not actually on the horses or the riders. We want to focus on those things. But in actuality, the focus is on the one who is opening the seals. The focus is on the sovereignty of the Lamb. Now, it would be very easy for us to view chapters 1 through 5 as separated from the rest of the book. The section we are now embarking upon, starting in chapter 6, going all the way through the book, is rife with debate and possibility for exegetical error because it is so easy for our eyes to focus on the wrong thing. We focus on the symbolic terror rather than on the sovereignty of the one providing the vision and the one being revealed, Jesus Christ himself. Remember, apocalypsis, Jesu, Christu, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So let's move slowly and first review what we do know about this section that we need to interpret carefully. It may seem obvious, but we first know that chapter 6 comes right out of chapters 1 through 5. I know that's shocking, but that's the truth. And this helps us set the structure, which we should pause and consider for a moment. Let's think about the structure of the book, and then we'll dig into the text. The imagery of the Old Testament that is brought forth, as we have discovered, suggests that chapters 1 through 3 are written to all churches across all times with a call to endure hardship and suffering. It's Christ calling his church to endurance. Then chapters 4 and 5 then begin the process of showing them why they can endure because of the sovereignty of Christ. They can endure in hardship, and they can have that perseverance because of the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. And if you don't know what sovereignty means, the very basic idea is that he is the one who sits on a throne. You can think about it this way. Think of a king sitting on his throne in his castle, and he has agents that go throughout his kingdom to do his work and his bidding, and he is the one who has responsibility for the kingdom and the one that could put his command forward. Now, that doesn't necessarily always mean that every little thing that happens in every house is necessarily caused by him, or he is the source of everything that happens, but he is the one enthroned over everything. And that'll start to give you an idea of what sovereignty means. A lot of people think the puppet master who makes every little nuance of of, uh, uh, reality happen, and I think that that tries to make it easier for us, but it is not 100% the truth of sovereignty. Well, chapters 4 and 5 show this idea of the sovereignty of Christ, and we think, well, stop there and start chapter 6. But these two chapters are a single vision that show the fulfilled prophetic scene straight out of Daniel the one we've looked at a number of times in Daniel 7, the Son of Man being enthroned through his sacrificial work in crucifixion and resurrection. And my suggestion to you then is that what these chapters picture is not some far-off, distant future event in heaven when things get really bad right before Christ's second coming. But I want to suggest to you that this was the symbolic heavenly vision of what occurred as a result of Christ's work in his first coming. And that they, chapters 4 and 5, initiate the events symbolized in chapters 6 through 8. Together they make up this vision of Christ's sovereign rule between his two advents or comings on earth. 
What then comes out of that vision of enthronement is a series of other visions in chapters 6 through 22 that are not linear, but are progressively recapitulating. You guys remember that phrase, progressive recapitulation. You're like, I just ate way too much food yesterday. You want me to remember what that means? Progressive recapitulation. You might remember this from the introduction in Revelation. This is a fancy term that means that we will be looking at the same events and even the same period of time from different angles throughout Revelation. Unfortunately, due to our Western uh, mentality and culture and our method of interpretation, we assume that everything we read is in linear progression of the visions given to John one after another. And we see the use of the word then, for example, to sequence them, one, two, three, four, five. And it requires an outworking or completion to be linear as well in events that take place in the future at the end of days. This view of Revelation started in Britain and it was taken over by those in the United States in the, the early, or excuse me, in the mid to late 1800s. And that is what is taught primarily in a lot of churches now. But we have been seeing, and, and I will continue to teach, the historically orthodox view of Revelation that chapters 4 and 5 actually flow into and is the background for the vision of the seals in chapters 6 through 8. And so what we will see there is that these events in the seven seals show Christ's sovereign rule between his first and second coming. And this view of these events will then be recapitulated. It will be repeated and looked at from different angles in chapters 8 through 11, as well as chapters 15 through 16. We'll see this in the seven trumpet judgments and again in the seven bowl judgments. They're looking at the same events from different angles. And if you're a person who thinks, nope, that's not the way it goes, I know how to read Revelation, just be open enough to follow us through it. You can tell me that at the end when we go through all these. But these sections will focus both on the judgment poured out on non-believers and the protection and sovereign care shown to believers during the church age. And scattered in between these sets, you might notice a few missing chapters there, scattered in between these seven judgments are interludes that do a deep dive on the enemy of Christ and his people and the destruction of that enemy. But we will add that along as we go. For today, this is the portion of the structure of the book that I want you to understand. This repetition of the seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. Now, you might say to me, Hans, this sounds confusing, and, and God isn't an author of confusion, and so therefore, he must not have done it this way. You must be wrong. Why make it so confusing? Why not just make it straightforward and linear like we think here in the Western world? But friends, we must understand that this wasn't written in the Western world. This critique only comes because of our cultural and chronological interpretive lens. We ask this, uh, this idea as a critique because of where we are in time and geography. But if we were first century Christians, especially ethnically Jewish Christians, centered in the Middle East, an area known as Turkey, this way of looking at Revelation more as a corkscrew that moves forward but circles back again and again to the same topic but with different views, this is the way they would have looked at it. They wouldn't have read it as a straightforward line. This was normal for them to look at it in this recapitulated view, always moving forward towards the ultimate return of Christ in fullness, but circling back again and again. The responsibility then falls on us to look at this book with the eyes of the original audience, not our own. And that's how we should interpret it. 
Now, this may seem tedious and maybe even confusing, but it is oh so important because one of the main errors that is often encountered when reading Revelation is to ask the question, as I've already posed, when will this all happen? When will these things happen? When will these signs be fulfilled so Christ's second coming will arrive? And this is a good-hearted question because we want Jesus to come. But we must remember that this is not the point of Revelation. It was not given to the first century church to tell them when they could look at the local news headlines and deduce that Christ was returning. It was instead given them to answer the questions not of when, but what and why and who. What is going on? Why is it happening? And who is on the throne? What, why, and who? Not when. Remember that they were in the midst of suffering and persecution, as we saw in chapters 2 and 3. And these questions would give them endurance in the midst of hardship. And when we suffer, even in 2021, I have found pastorally that, yes, we ask how long, but the more pressing question I run into is why. People ask me as a pastor if Christ has emerged victorious from the grave, if Christ has conquered sin, death, and hell, if Christ is enthroned over his people, why does all this chaos still seem as though it reigns? Are these questions we ask ourselves when we are honest in suffering? One commentator put it this way, why, if the lion-lamb has conquered, does the world continue to be a place of evil, violence, and misery? You guys ever asked that question before? And so what we will see throughout Revelation is not signs that point to when the suffering will occur and how, but more so describe why they are occurring and who is on the throne when they do. One of the reasons I think we ask when is because we in America very rarely suffer. But everybody else in the world suffers all the time. So they're not asking when suffering is going to happen. They know it's happening right now. So they don't ask when, they ask why. And the why question is a question of sovereignty. You see, the world presents us with a false dilemma when posing the statement to us that if God is good and God is sovereign over the affairs of men, then suffering would not occur. Because suffering occurs, they, they say, either God is not sovereign or God is not good. But friends, this is a false dilemma that puts ourselves at the center of judgment over good and evil. And by taking this bait of this question, we are no different than our first mother who was given the same false dilemma in the garden that was questioning whether or not she could trust God. What we see right away in chapters 4 and 5 is that God is indeed good, for he has not spared his only son. In chapter 5, we saw that he instead sent him to be the selfless, spotless sacrifice to free us from our own sin. We saw that he was enthroned as a sovereign Lord and ruler over the cosmos as a result. But the fullness of his kingdom has not yet come. And we exist in this time of already but not yet. Jesus reigns, but not in fullness. And so from his first appearance on this earth until his second and final appearance, he will reign in both judgment and salvation as a foreshadowing of the final judgment day. Suffering will occur in the midst of that judgment, and yet he is still good and we can trust him, even when life doesn't make sense. Now, why can we trust him? Because in chapter 5, we just saw the lamb who was both standing victorious and yet as though slain in sacrifice, seated upon the sovereign throne. 
We can trust him because of the cross that he endured on our behalf and because of which he is now enthroned. Remember, it says, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. He is the focus of this chapter. And from this point on through verse 8, four riders atop horses will be released to wreak havoc on the earth. Excuse me. And our eyes quickly widen when we hear this. And we focus on the horsemen. But in doing so, we miss the main point. We miss who is in John's vision, the one who is opening the seals. You see, before each rider is dispatched, notice that there is always a command from the throne saying, come. These horsemen do not move without the express command of the enthroned sovereign put forth through the worshiping creatures upon whose back the throne sits. This understanding of the Lamb's complete power and authority is further reinforced in the language used throughout. Look at verse 2. And to the first horseman it says, a crown was given to him. He didn't have a crown. It was given to him by the one with true authority. In verse 4, to the second horseman, it says its rider was permitted to take peace, and it was given a great sword. In verse 6, to the third horseman, notice the command that sets the confines of the economic collapse and restrains it. And finally, in verse 8, you see a rider who is given authority to bring death, and that authority is also restrained. Who is the one that gives commands? Who is the one that restrains the suffering? It's the lamb who sits on the throne. Because notice that the rider of this fourth horse is death and Hades follows. Remember who Christ identified himself as in chapter 1, verse 18? He is the living one who died. And behold, he is alive forevermore and has the keys of death and Hades. Friends, the focus here is on the sovereignty of the one seated on the throne, the sovereign reign of the one who is opening the seals, the sovereign rule of the one giving the command for the horseman to step forth. And he does so because he is carrying out judgment upon a world that has dismissed him. And this is not out of unchecked, authoritarian, unjust, abusive vengeance, but out of measured wisdom, justice, and love. But before we get into that, we need to unpack the four horsemen as we see a foreshadow of sovereign judgment carried out in suffering. A foreshadow of sovereign judgment carried out in suffering. Now again, it is so important that we remember that these horsemen are not meant to be signs. Signs of the times. To make them so would be asking the wrong question of when. One can think of Jesus' disciples asking in each of the synoptic gospels and acts when the end would come. Remember his response? It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. I have good family and friends who are really into prophecy, and no matter how many times they read this, It doesn't seem to matter. It is not for us to know the times and the seasons. 
It's not for them, the readers of, or the apostles there in Acts 1. It's not for us to know times and seasons. So what was the point of telling us about the suffering that would occur? Well, friends, listen to what Jesus says to his disciples in Mark 13, uh, another synoptic view of the same reading that we did earlier from Luke. Notice what it says in Mark 13, 6 through 8. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. Notice him dismissing this as an idea of signs. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. In other words, welcome to life. Notice what he says. These are but the beginnings of birth pangs. And he goes on to say that what he is doing is staying firm in him. He says, don't be alarmed. The whole point of telling them this was to say, guys, don't freak out. Everybody relax and calm down. The goal was to help us stand firm in Christ and not be led astray. For suffering in our own lives or in the world around us seems to kill the gospel faster than anything else. Have you noticed what's happening to the church at large in our current world? Half of the people that proclaim to be Christians are not returning to church. Why? Because the world's in chaos. Friends, it's always been in chaos. The seed of the gospel is choked out by the weeds of the cares of this life or burnt to a crisp by the tribulation of the heat of suffering. Either way, many humans are led astray to trust in our own feelings and understanding. And so the whole point is to hold us firm in Christ when we start freaking out. At the core of good theology of suffering is to understand that, friends, we deserve suffering. And what all of creation deserves, ourselves included, is death, hell, and eternal destruction. And so any measured suffering in this life that does not totally consume us is God's unmerited grace. Any common grace we find in the natural order of things is God's unmerited grace. And the fact that he saves some in spite of our sin is God's unmerited grace. We deserve death, hell, and destruction. And to say that God is not good because suffering exists is in fact to minimize my own sin and the sin of all creation and the fact that humans are the ones that brought sin and brokenness into play. And it's to lift myself up as God and judge. Suffering has previously, does now, and will exist because in our human sin, we have handed over God's creation to futility. But notice that something happened as a result of the lamb in chapter 5 being enthroned. The suffering that's brought forth now in the form of these riders and their horses is now under his rule, whereas before it was not constrained at all. It was brought under his rule so that the gospel could go out. Now, these same methods of suffering that have been with humanity since the get-go, they are not free to do as they please. They are held back. They are restrained. They are under his sovereign command. And as with Revelation thus far, the Old Testament gives us an amazing background of imagery to be able to see what is happening here. This suffering is a form of foreshadowed judgment. Let me take you to a few places in the Old Testament to show you why I believe this. 
First, we can think of the language of the Torah as God spoke clearly to Israel, gave them his law, and called them to follow him in covenant faithfulness. As part of this law, God provided blessings for obedience and cursings for disobedience. But in that cursing, God was always using suffering to call his people back to him. You can see this in multiple places, especially Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Would you turn to one of those now to Leviticus 26 in your Bible? Leviticus 26. I know many of you probably spend most of your time in the Bible, in Leviticus, because you love it so much. We should. It's the Lord's Word. Leviticus 26, starting in verse 18. Listen to the same images uh, that are used in our reading today. Leviticus 26, 18. And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, God says, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. Remind me, how many seals were there? Seven. And I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze, and your strength shall be spent in vain. For your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. Then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. And I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number so that your roads shall be deserted. And if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you, and I myself will strike, the sevenfold, strike you sevenfold for your sins. And I will bring a sword upon you and shall execute vengeance for the covenant. And if you gather within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. When I break your supply of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in a single oven and shall dole out your bread again by weight, and you shall, not, you shall eat and not be satisfied. But if in spite of this you will not listen to me but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. Now notice two things with me. First, that God's purpose in the events of suffering on a massive scale is always to call people to repentance. It's to leave a rebellious people, or excuse me, to leave a rebellious people enabled in their sin would be callous and unloving. To get their attention, to draw them back to the source of life is loving. For us to say, how dare he do this, this sounds arrogant and narcissistic and mean. We don't understand that God is the source of all love and all life. It would be like a plug saying to an electrical outlet, how dare you call me back to yourself? It would make no sense. It's loving for God to say, I'm going to wake you up by any means necessary and draw you back to myself. And second, notice that the same tools that are seen symbolized in the horsemen are used here. Enemy conquest, warfare, famine, pestilence, and death. And interestingly, notice that he will enact it sevenfold, just as he will in Revelation with seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. He's getting our attention. Friends, why are we in a pandemic? Because he's getting our attention. You will die, he says, maybe today, maybe tomorrow. So pay attention to the source of life. But not only the Torah gives us background for what we are reading in chapter 6, so do the prophets of the Old Testament. Would you turn with me to Ezekiel, more in the center of your Bible, Ezekiel 14, and let's take a look there. Go past Isaiah and Jeremiah and Lamentations to Ezekiel 14. starting in verse 12. This is speaking to Jerusalem. 
And Ezekiel says, the word of Yahweh, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, when a land sins against me by acting faithlessly, and I stretch out my hand against it and break its supply of bread and send famine upon it and cut off from it man and beast, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord God. If I cause wild beasts to pass through the land and they ravage it and it may be made desolate so that no one may pass through because of the beasts, even if these three men were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters. They alone would be delivered, but the land would be desolate. Or if I bring a sword upon the land and say, let a sword pass through the land and I cut off from it man and beast, though these three men were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters, but they alone would be delivered. Or if I send a pestilence into that land and pour out my wrath upon it with blood to cut off from it man and beast, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither son nor daughter. They would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness. For thus says the Lord God, how much more when I send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous acts of judgment, sword, famine, wild beasts, and pestilence to cut off from it man and beast. But behold, some survivors will be left in it, sons and daughters who will be brought out. Behold, when they come out to you and you see their ways and their deeds, you will be consoled for the disaster that I have brought upon Jerusalem, for all that I have brought upon it. They will console you when you see their ways and their deeds, and you shall know that I have not done without cause all that I have done in it, declares the Lord. Here the judgment was upon Israel for its idolatry, but at the advent of Christ... And the moving forth of the gospel, God is now calling all mankind everywhere to repent and turn to him. Revelation is telling us that Jesus is God, for God was the one who could control these same tools of judgment prior, God the Father. But he has now given all authority into the Son, into the hands of the Son, and now the Son is the one that is sovereign over it. The earth is now under the sovereignty of the Lamb, and so he is using similar tools of judgment in the mass suffering that plagues mankind. Notice, I am not talking about individual situations in life. That's a whole other teaching. The suffering that occurs in your life is not always because of sin. Sometimes it might be, but not always. We're talking about huge mass suffering that plagues mankind here. Well, lastly, for background, one more place I'll take you to imagery of the four horsemen of Revelation. Let's turn to Zechariah. Go a little bit to the right. If you hit the New Testament, you've gone too far. Go a little bit to the right to Zechariah 6, starting in verse 1. Now, you will find imagery of horsemen in both Zechariah 1 and Zechariah 6, but the imagery of Zechariah 6 matches very closely, especially in the coloring of the horses, even though they are pictured as horses leading a chariot. It's still the same mentality. Take a look at chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between the two mountains. And these mountains are pictured as symbols of stability, the temple of God. The mountains were mountains of bronze, it says. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Notice the what, not the when. What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, these are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. In other words, these are spiritual beings. And the chariot with the black horses goes towards the north country. The white ones go after them. The dappled ones go out toward the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. 
And he cried to me, Behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. Now, we're not going to exegete this passage, but recognize that either way here, in Revelation or Zechariah, the symbolism is that of warfare and warriors sent on the behalf of God throughout the entirety of earth. These beings are sent to, in the words here, patrol the earth. The most helpful statement is in verses 4 and 5, where it says, These are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The word in Hebrew... Behind wind there is the same word that could also mean spirit. It's ruach. So it could be that this is actually saying these are the four spirits of heaven sent throughout the earth. Either way, the imagery which helps us in Revelation is that these are messengers and emissaries of the divine throne sent to accomplish his will. They are not separate beings operating in autonomous authority that we need to be scared of. They belong and are commanded by our God. We need not fear them. These first four seals then clarify their meaning and are simply four spiritual warrior beings sent by the command of the Lamb to carry out his judgment on those who oppose his rule and oppress the citizens of his kingdom. So let's break down each and every one of these that we will see these four Let's take a look at them and see what they are. First, we have a white horse. Let's go ahead and go back to Revelation, and we can read it again. It says, Now watch when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Its rider had a bow and was crowned, by the one on the throne. He came out conquering and to conquer. And this rider is meant to symbolize the greed of conquest. It symbolizes the ongoing predatory nature of men and kingdoms for more land and more territory and more power. Gosh, good thing that doesn't describe our world anymore. Have you guys read about China or about the Ukraine and Russia? Oh, Hans is making predictions. No, I'm not. I'm saying it's always been there It always will be there until Christ's return. It's the greed of conquest. And these pushes of national or ideological fervor are usually led by leaders whom their followers deem as an answer to their prayers, a kind of false savior or false redeemer. Look at world history and ask why entire entire nations follow despotic leaders. Friends, because they deem them false saviors. It even happens in our own country every four years. In Revelation 19, we will see Jesus, likewise, riding on a white horse. But there, he will have many differences than what we see here. Not least of which is that he will have multiple diadems on his head or royal crowns made of metal meant to last. That's what the word diadem in the Greek means. The figure in our text here in Revelation atop uh, this white horse only has a singular Stephanos in the Greek. He has a crown that is temporary, similar to the leafy rings placed atop the head of ancient Olympian Olympian victors. It will eventually fade and die. Now, this figure in Revelation 6 is intended to be a form of forgery of a Christ-like being, not a particular antichrist being, but just the fact that the earth constantly suffers from antichrist-like beings 
who decide to have the conquest of power. For all the earthly leaders and national heads of state, they will fail and fall in their greed for conquest, as will every nation, probably even our own, if the Lord should tarry long enough. I don't hope for that, but that is the likelihood. And one leader, false leader, will replace another until the Lord returns once and for all. We need not fear it. Now, second, we see a red horse, and its rider is permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he is given a great sword. Friends, this rider is meant to symbolize the slaughter of warfare, the slaughter of warfare. From these false Christ-like leaders and their thirst for power and dominion often comes warfare and the slaughter of innocents. This is the history of mankind. This was even the progression which Jesus outlined for his disciples when he spoke to them of the last things. This is from Matthew. We've looked at Mark and Luke, the same section, but in Matthew 24, 4 through 8, notice the progression that he says. For he answered them, Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. Okay, again, don't be led astray in your feelings. He's trying to cement his people in truth. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And there, he's not talking about necessarily cult leaders who say they're Christ, like the guy back in Texas back in the 90s, right? Or those that are around all the time. What he's talking about is false messiahs. I am your messiah. Remember, Christos means savior, anointed king, the one that will save you. We look at that in politicians. Every time a politician stands up and says, I will save you, he is saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. Again, look at the history of our nation every four years. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Notice the leader, then the wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end... What does it say? Is not yet. Okay? These are not signs. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be, notice now, famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pangs. And so we see the greed of conquest roll into the slaughter of warfare. And third that comes from this, the black horse and its rider are commanded forth. And he has a pair of scales in his hand. And this rider is meant to symbolize economic hardship and famine. And a voice comes forth from the throne and the lamb declares, if you will, the trading values for the day. It's like the stock exchange a bit. Notice what he says there. He says, and I heard what seemed to be a voice, verse 6, in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. A denarius was a day's wage, and so, in essence, he is declaring that the economic situation is so dire that it would take an entire day's wages to buy a loaf of bread, and yet it is contained to a point so that the oil and wine are not drastically affected, or else the death toll would be far greater. Some commentators who know the economies of the day estimate that this was describing an 800% increase in inflation. Those who would normally eat bread made of wheat are forced to eat the food of poverty, bread made of barley. You might say, oh man, when is this sign happening? Friends, just go to Argent or not Argentina, excuse me, Venezuela, there we go, and go to uh, Afghanistan right now. This has been happening in the history of man, and it will happen until Christ's return. It's just constrained in various places. Famine and economic unrest often follows with the chaos of changing leaders attempting to grab power, Taliban, Afghanistan, 
in the midst of warfare, and then pestilence and disease come. As we have even seen, even in our own day, as a result of the chaos and sickness in our own country. And fourth, we finally see that there is a pale or mottled horse. The word in the Greek is chloros. Chloros. Similar to our word chlorine. Chloros, which means a greenish pale gray. It is the color of death that overcomes a corpse. This horse and its rider is meant to symbolize the destruction of death. That is the usual outcome of conquest that inflicts warfare and economic hardship and famine. Here we notice that at the end it says they were given authority over a fourth of the earth. Notice to kill with a number of tools, sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts of the earth. These wild beasts come to feast on the fallen that result from these events. Pestilence is a fancy word for disease and sickness. But again, Jesus spoke of this in Matthew 24. These things do not signify the end. Directly prior to Christ's return, these things will happen even as they do now. They may happen in greater degree, yes, but they're still happening now. And so the goal here is not to communicate a timeline or signs of that timeline. The goal is to communicate that in the midst of ordinary suffering that overtakes mankind, ordinary suffering that, occur, suffering that occurs the world over throughout the time between Christ's first and second advent, these four tools are used by the Lamb in sovereign power and wisdom to wake up the world and try to draw them to himself. Friends, you can see this pictured throughout the word. What happens when suffering occurs? Your heart will either be softened to the giver of life or it will be hardened towards him. We see this in people around us right now. Think of the image of the cross. One man on one side softened by the suffering of crucifixion, calling out to Christ. Think of the image on the other side, a man hardened, even further rebelling against the God that was crucified next to him. Suffering either hardens your heart or softens it towards God. One commentator put it this way, these tools, these four horsemen, are the Lamb's providential instruments of pre-wrath wrath and pre-judgment justice, foreshadowing the end when God's victory over his enemies will be total. Christ is so powerful in the victory of the cross that he has made the forces that operate in evil his own agents to bring judgment upon those who refuse his reign and purify through patient endurance those who are his kingdom citizens. We might say, Jesus is not ruling and reigning because it's not perfect yet. Well, friends, we live amongst a rebelling people. The siege is still occurring. We just simply have to wait for Jesus to enter through the city gates. The overall message of the four horsemen is this. The lamb is on the throne. When chaos ensues, when political parties or governmental entities or nations are toppled, when economic hardships erupt, when pestilence strikes terror in the heart of men, our response as Christians should show that our security is not associated with any political party, any leader, any economy, any status of health, or any stockpile of toilet paper. Our confidence, our security, and our trust is held firmly in the one that sits on the throne. 
the Lamb of God who took away our sins and who will come again to fully enact the judgment that these four horsemen foreshadow, he is the one in whom our security is found. Are you known as a Christian by your friends in this time of chaos as one who is secure and at peace, knowing your security is in Christ? Or are you known as one just like the rest of the world, freaking out because you have no security? It's an important question for us to ask because it is our witness of who we find our security in. And as this trust is built in the true followers of Christ amidst the chaos that is oh so normal in this church age, what we will see as we continue in this chapter through chapter 8 and for the rest of Revelation is the sanctification of the saints. The sanctification of the saints. Now to show this to you, I'm not going to go past uh, my, the eighth verse here in chapter 6, but I do want to look ahead to chapter 7 because we read in context. And just as we read in context of chapter 5, we must also read in the context of chapter 7, which we'll read, read in a couple of weeks. For without that chapter, it does seem that God might be a capricious despot who simply likes to inflict suffering just because he can, but that is not the case. This is not at all the view of God that is presented to us here. The Lamb is here presented as a righteous king, and these judgments of the first four seals issue forth from the throne to discipline and partially judge a rebellious creation who takes God's commonly gracious provision and yet turns their back on his benevolent reign. How many people yesterday during Christmas may have, out of tradition, said grace at their tables, pretending that they believe in the provision of God, but then gone about their business the rest of the day as if he does not exist? I know that that's true for me as a believer sometimes, let alone those who don't believe at all and rebel completely. God is showing his judgment, his pre-wrath, wrath. At the same time, the lamb takes care of his own in a much more important way. And that is in holding our eternal position firm in Christ. We get so focused on the worldly that we forget that he has done the most important thing so that even the enemy of death cannot conquer us. He has given us an eternal position firm in himself because of his death on our behalf and his resurrection that proved this truth. So just as these events of suffering are being let loose by the breaking of the seals, God throughout history, through his son since 2,000 years ago, is also holding tight his people and that he seals them and secures them in his eternal rest. This is the message of chapter 7. Look ahead with me really quickly at verse 3. Just verse 3 alone. In verse 3 alone, notice that the angel says out loud, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have, notice the word, sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Revelation 6 paints a vivid image of the truth that suffering will happen in this mortal life. But even the chaos that causes that suffering is not outside the sovereign grace of God. For notice, amidst the evil and sin that mankind has unleashed on his creation, God entered into it as the slain lamb to redeem all that had gone wrong. And he died a death he did not deserve in place of his rebellious creation so that you and, my, you and I might have our sin forgiven. And when he resurrected, he was given a place of authority as king over the cosmos. And the victorious yet slain lamb amidst the throne reigns. And reigning in justice, he brings discipline to the rebelling world 
And reigning in gracious love, he sanctifies his own through those same trials, which point our eyes to him and him alone, trusting that he has us firmly in his grasp no matter what happens. And so notice, friends, on the one hand, he is unleashing the seals. He is breaking them so that his plan can roll out. And on the other, in chapter 7, verse 3, he is actually sealing up those who are his. A broken seal on one hand, a confirmed seal on the other. And what we learned last week is that the confirmation of a seal, no one can break it unless the author of the document decides to do so. And friends, if you are sealed in Christ, you are his. Nothing formed against you can break that seal. This is the picture of a good God reigning. Rebellious people receive his judgment, and those who submit to him receive his care and security. This reveals the providence of the Lamb on the throne. No matter what happens in this insane world, no matter what happens in 2022, he will not be moved, and neither will his people. Friends, no matter what happens to each of us, today or tomorrow, if you believe in Jesus, if you have given your life to him as king, if you have been baptized in his name and walk with his people, I can assure you, if your heart is truly his, that your eternity is secure in him. If that's not you today, or if you are watching online and that's not you, we would love to talk with you. Either one of the pastors after the service, or you can email me at hans at missionsalem.com. We would love to talk with you about what it is to follow Jesus Christ. And so as we approach the eve of a new year, and we consider the chaos that will most likely come, as it has every year, we can enter into it with confidence because of the story we see played out in the text before us. We are to recognize that the story of the Bible is one of God taking what was intended for evil by his created beings and turning it for an eternal and God-glorifying good. And just as Jesus said, wars and famines and pestilences and false saviors will come, but none of these should shock us or surprise us. None of these should increase or decrease our hope. And none of these should cause us to speculate in conspiracy. These should simply remind us of who is on the throne, a righteous and just lamb who we can turn to in prayer whenever we need and who holds us tight no matter the suffering we endure even in the face of death. And we will see next week that he won't leave the world in this current state of affairs, but he will hear his people's cries. He will hear the cries of the martyrs. And he will act one day to judge all sin in fullness and bring all creation into the fullness of his loving reign. Until then, we will remind ourselves through our service today and through communion that we take together that Jesus is seated on the throne as we remember what he has done through the cross and through his resurrection. Amen? Amen. Amen.